Hello and welcome into another Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Tuttle, joined alongside site publisher Chris Cartman, as well as reporter Noah Furtado. Chris, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's uh, it's good to finally be able to not be traveling all over the country following a basketball team while also trying to cover football simultaneously. And it's giving some really good sort of perspective with uh, how much of the football practices are open to the media. So I'm excited to kind of talk about that um, in addition to basketball today. Absolutely. Noah, how are you? Good, man. It's been a minute since I've uh, been on a podcast here for um, for Source. So we've got a lot to cover today and I'm ready to go. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had a podcast. We've got basketball that wrapped up. We've got to cover that. We've got Bobby Hurley's contract extension. Kenny Dillingham is in action. So, guys, let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, Noah, I want to start off with you first. Uh, basketball, they put up a tough fight in the NCAA tournament, of course, getting through Nevada. Then they faced a tough a tough loss in the next round. Uh, so what are your thoughts on how that wrapped up and what were just kind of your initial um, impressions on how they played throughout the tournament? It was reasonably impressive given how bleak it looked. Uh, at times midway through the season and even toward the end um, of the regular season. You looked at their last three regular season games against Arizona, UCLA, and USC all on the road. Um, There was a lot of speculation as to whether or not um, they'd have to win two games at least or three games to really put themselves in better position for an at-large bid and then how that would lend itself to uh, a Pac-12 tournament performance. Uh, really things worked out in their favor uh, because they dropped two of those three um, and going to Las Vegas, they had a lot uh, on their plate to really be comfortable with their position. Even after the two wins, getting to the semifinals, um, which hasn't really happened a lot um, at ASU in recent decades, that still didn't necessarily put them in a strong position for an at-large bid. Uh, and they kind of snuck in there with uh, the number 11 seed. But when they got into that playing game, I thought, you know, they looked the best they probably did all season uh, offensively. Um, It's not as if anything really changed. It's just when you have DJ Horn, Desmond Cambridge hitting shots, it just naturally promotes a certain flow to the offense and a confidence that everyone else feeds off of. And I thought you saw them sharing the ball and sort of expecting it back, that sort of dynamic in that 98-73 blowout of Nevada. Um, And and really, they played well against TCU in in that first round game. It was, uh, you know, it just didn't turn out the way they wanted to, obviously, in the end result. But they, I thought they put up a really good fight against, you know, a Big 12 opponent, Big 12, one of the best conferences, if not the best conference in uh, college basketball this season, at least. And, um, you know, I I was uh, going through that game, just sort of looking at projecting whether or not they'd actually pull it out. Uh, DJ Horn, it's a big shot at the end there, uh, sort of gives you some sense that they have gamers on their roster that, uh, you know, maybe hasn't been the case in recent years, uh, you know, during the pandemic. And uh, it just happens sometimes the way it does, you know, with, with buzzer beaters, uh, you know, last second shots, that sort. Um, but overall, I thought the end of their season was actually, uh, it went as good as, you know, some could have expected given, you know, some of the doubts toward the end of the regular season, like I had mentioned, and how they were really able to pull through and actually get to uh, get to the first round of the NCAA tournament. Yeah, Chris, uh, what, what were your thoughts on how the team played throughout the tournament and just leading up to that as well? Well, um they, I don't think they would have been in the tournament had they not won two games uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, you got to start with that. Like Noah said, extremely rare for ASU to even get to a semifinal winning a couple games. It had been a disappointing conclusion to their regular season. They didn't get one of the four buys uh, after, you know, uh, what looked to be a really great start um, that they kind of, you know, didn't do well in, in the last month, month and a half of the regular season. But then, 
Um, you know, they kind of Oregon State, they're a much better team probably than Oregon State, but they didn't actually play that well in their first game. Then they hit a ton of threes against USC. I mean, it was they 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 hit a they tied a season high with something 14 threes. They took over 30 threes, and they're not a really great matchup for USC, so they probably needed that uh to, to win that game. Uh, having lost two two times previously uh, in the season um, against Arizona, they uh, they were clearly inferior from a talent standpoint, and then they also didn't make threes in that game, which you don't really have much of a chance when you're not shooting the ball well against Arizona. Um, I think people remember that um, they played you know like a great game in Tucson, hit uh, double digit threes, and um, like Noah said, like when. DJ Horn and Desmond Cambridge are, are are shooting the ball well from the perimeter. That makes ASU extremely difficult. And Nevada found that out the hard way uh, because they just ran into a total buzzsaw where ASU um, it was like they couldn't miss anything. They just like they were over 50% from three in the game. They had, I believe, their overall shooting percentage was the highest ever in a NCAA tournament game in Dayton, which has had like as many games as anywhere because of hosting the first four in recent years. Um, and you look at TCU and, and uh, that was a better, bigger, stronger, more athletic team than ASU, but ASU had an incredible first half. Like, like you, you almost wouldn't have thought it possible for ASU to have a better half than either of the halves that, that it had against Nevada. And then it goes out there and I'm just like, what am I even seeing watching this thing in person having looked at ASU this whole season, the fact that ASU was playing this good in the tournament, um, but they had just probably an average or maybe even a little bit better than average second half. And that wasn't good enough against a great uh, opponent like TCU, one of the best teams at ASU played all season, um, which also, which definitely had one of the best guards that ASU faced all season who absolutely caused a lot of problems uh, for ASU. So um it ASU fans are used to frustration in the tournament. Uh, the Texas game years ago was like um, a dagger to their hearts. This one felt like that as well, the way that it ended in the last couple seconds. Um, but again, you can't really say that ASU deserved to win based upon how it played down the stretch of that game. Yeah, you look at the overall finish for the Sun Devils. They were 23-13, and 11-9 in conference play. Chris, what are your thoughts on just the overall performance of the team throughout the entire season, how they held up, um, kind of what occurred throughout the season? Just what were your thoughts uh, from the performance this year from ASU? Well, look, I think um, they did some very impressive things. Um, it's, it just so happens that most of them were away from Tempe, which is like kind of good and kind of like a little bit concerning that that was the case, right? They uh, had a great start objectively even though they 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 had the really bad only Q4 loss to Texas Southern and they got blown out at USF the fact that they won on neutral against uh VCU Creighton uh Michigan like that is some outstanding stuff that they accomplished right um and for the season they won five quad one wins away from Tempe and they had none in Tempe, they only played like probably two or three quad one games at home, but uh, they lost at home in a month long stretch of like from like late January into February to Oregon, Colorado and USC. And I think um, I looked at a lot of the resumes of the NCAA tournament teams and there was basically nobody, no team that had five Q1 wins away from home and then lost three or more games like that at home against, you know, decent teams. I'm not saying disparaging those teams that like, you know, like USC and, and uh, Oregon, like they're tough, but um, you have to be able to win those games at home consistently to put yourself out of the, the bubble conversation. And really ASU showed from what it did in November, December, and then what it, how well it played in tournament, right? That ASU could have been a better team than it was this season. Could have not been an 11 seed, but maybe somewhere like an eight or a nine or a 10 seed. 
you know, not, not world beaters. They weren't going to be a seven C they didn't have that offensive capability uh, probably, but they were such a good defensive team and they, they, um, they just didn't maximize their potential on the offensive end of the floor enough. And especially when you look at the conference as a whole, really only had the two really great teams, Arizona and UCLA. And then ASU was in that conversation quite clearly for the third best team. But then they ended up not even in the top five seeds in the Pac-12 tournament after starting six and one and then the conference, which hadn't happened since 1981. So if you look at it in terms of and then also is you kind of want to be playing your best basketball in February, March, right? But they didn't play their best basketball in February. That was actually some of their worst basketball overall outside of the, the win, the Arizona win in Tucson, which was a sort of anomalous, but a great game. Um, so if you look at it in terms of what their range of potential was with this team this season against this Pac-12, they were sort of at, at most on the middle end of that. And maybe even like slightly lower than the middle end of that, I, I would say. And so I, I judge a team by by how well you do relative to your potential and the opportunity that you had. And when they started out so strong, and then they were six and one to start the conference play, they shouldn't have been a bubble team. They should have been clearly in. And then they would have had to not play against a team as good as like a TCU in or had to go to Dayton and then a quick turnaround two nights later with the travel thing. And so that's kind of um, the thing that you, and Bobby Hurley even said it himself. We got we, we should have done better at home. I, I'm looking at how we need to be able to do better at home. So it, a solid season for ASU historically, but still not squeezed out as much as what was possible. Noah, so I want to bring you in on the conversation. So what do you think about Chris's perspective what do you have to add to this? Do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you got? I'd agree. I, I think on the point of relative to how the Pac-12 looked this season, ASU missed an opportunity to to really be one of the top three, top four teams. Uh, when you look at Oregon, which uh, which just so happened to be the four seed slip in there at the end of the season, and um, that program is as consistent as it's been under Daniel Altman, you know, in the last decade or so, it was a down season for them. Right. And even then ASU, given the streak it had, Chris had mentioned it best pack 12 start since 1980, 81, they had to have quite the collapse from that point forward to really fall into the position that they were in toward the end of the season. Um, you know, you're looking at, they still had, had 20 conference games total, right, to play. And a lot, we had acknowledged at the time that a lot could happen. But in terms of how they shaped up next to the, uh, some of the other teams outside of Arizona and UCLA, I mean, we can be honest there, the gap between those two top uh, Pac-12 teams and the rest was massive. Right, those two teams are basically ranked in the top ten nationally uh, for for most of the season. So beyond that, ASU could have reasonably expected to compete with a USC, with an Oregon, obviously with any other team um, outside of those two as well. And the fact that they were not able to really get uh, what they were primed to get, given the six and one start, I think speaks volumes about some of the inconsistencies uh, too much that uh, that they were suffering really in, during that stretch uh, offensively because defensively this team uh, overall was probably one of Hurley's better defensive teams. Uh, having a guy like Warren Washington just with his length inside, I thought helped, um, you know, supplement the active hands, the guards um, that they had uh, very aggressive on that end uh, and overall kind of played pretty well collectively together. Um, but on the whole of the season, just looking at their overall record, they had 23 wins. My last projection that I can remember, I had them around 21 or 22 wins. Um, obviously getting into the tournament, winning some Pac-12 tournament games, getting the, getting the play in and winning that one that, that boosts them a little bit. But I think, you know, generally speaking, this was a good season for ASU given where, it was coming from off of two 
really bad seasons, two losing seasons. Uh, Hurley had acknowledged it himself where the program really took steps back. Right. And uh, this was, I think it's fair to say a step forward um, not to make too much of it because I think this team still has a ways to go uh, if it wants to really compete for championships, but that's a, that's a whole nother conversation. And Bobby Hurley shortly after the season, getting his contract extended. So it adds two seasons onto his current contract. And he also referenced his family in, in that inner, or excuse me, that press conference, uh, just going over his contract extension and how um, he, he loves living in the Valley. His family's here. He feels rooted in here and, and believes that he can bring Arizona state um, back to an exceptional basketball school. Uh, so Noah, what are your thoughts on that? Just the extension uh, and what Coach Hurley had to say. He earned it. Um, I thought that some of his, um, what some of what he said, really, uh, Chris mentioned it earlier about trying to be more successful at home. Uh, really good sentiment. Like, yes, for sure, when you're trying to compete in the Pac-12, uh, even in down seasons, you got you to gotta win those games because it's hard to win on the road in the Pac-12. But I still think, He's yet to figure out sort of uh, explicitly what what is you know behind that what what he actually has to do to to make adjustments and uh, uh, advancements in that regard. Um, I thought it was interesting that he brought up his uh, his brother Dan Hurley, obviously uh, head coach of the national champion Yukon Huskies. Um, the fact that he was there watching him uh, and what, you know, his brother had built um, could, could provide some motivation, maybe even some, uh, some pointers that he might implement uh, moving forward. He, he's been here a while um, at ASU. So I, I think that he, he has sort of a comfortability with how he's running the program. And it sort of showed because he had, he had talked about in terms of in-game adjustments. He was asked about that a little bit. He said, he, he it's always going to have to evolve, but at the same time, they won a lot, a lot of close games this season. And they did, they did. Um, but he didn't really, you know, he wasn't really comfortable getting into that sort of uh, that sort of a criticism as, as people have sort of talked about. Um, and, you know, the fact that he's coming off a season in which there is, you know, rumblings about him getting fired, potentially the job security lowering, especially during that really, really bad stretch uh, from the midway point to sort of the latter stages of the regular season. I think that he is going to take this extension really as, as a confidence boost in terms of the trust between him uh, and the administration, for one. Um, but there, there's, there's still a lot that uh, is yet to be seen about what he can actually bring to the table that's different, that uh, can really push this team to the point where where fans really want it to be, which is winning Pac-12 championships and uh, getting into the NCAA tournament outright. Um, a lot of people, the first four might not sort of be considered the same. Chris, Noah talked a little bit about how not everybody in the Valley had, had that belief in Coach Hurley around Tempe. I want to get your opinion on that. And just do you think he was deserving of this extension despite, uh, you know, everything we saw at the end of the season? What was your opinion on what he had to say? And uh, do you disagree or agree with Noah? Well, so fortunately, I'm in charge of this podcast because it may take a few minutes for me to kind of unpack all my thoughts on this. Um, look, I was sort of struck by some of the things that you guys said earlier. So uh, ASU's never won a pack. 12 or Pac-10 championship, right? Um, they, you know, they've been in the conference since 1978. Uh, Ned Wolk did a phenomenal job just prior to, and even a little bit after ASU was joined the conference through that incredible sort of very early 80s period before ASU decided that they could do better um, and then they never did better for 40 years. And then they put his name on the court because, because they recognized that, oops, we probably made a mistake here. Um, and Bobby Hurley has sort of in a veiled way, sort of referenced ASU's lack of great tradition or history of success. He said at one time earlier in the season, like, you know, I don't see banners, you know, up there in the arena. 
And I was like, yeah, he, this dude's making a point, right? Um, and I think when you have comments that are made like ASU president Michael Crow made about the unimportance of the arena and how the arena doesn't have an impact on winning, that's so disconnected from reality that uh, it it allows for the perspective of Hurley talking about, you know, in a, uh, you know, uh, subtextual way, the lack of historical success at ASU and how that can actually be limiting on him and anyone else who might have the job, I think is very uh, relevant to this conversation. Because if you want to replace Bobby Hurley, which a lot of ASU fans think that he should not be ASU's coach anymore after eight seasons, uh, seven of which had an NCAA tournament, none of which had ASU better than the first four, although he did make the first four three times, which no other coach uh, at ASU since Ned Wilk made the tournament three times. So that's a feather in the, in, the, in, the, in the Hurley's cap, if you will, three out of seven. And he's had 20 win seasons in all those years and the one other year that there was no tournament. But ASU doesn't fund the program like they do at a lot of the highest profile uh, places in the Pac-12 or, or elsewhere. Uh, ASU is not taking chartered flights all around the country. They don't have the same recruiting budget to get their coaches to and from places to go see recruits. Uh, and they don't have the arena. Like, And Crow's comments are they're just moronic for a president to say something like that, right? You guys know if you have a very loud audio video system in your arena, that contributes to the fan experience, which makes fans louder, which makes the arena louder, which then makes it tougher on an opponent within a game, right? And then beyond that, I've talked to hundreds of recruits who have said they want to play in like a great environment, right? Arizona has a great environment. ASU has a pretty decent environment. It's gotten better under Hurley. He deserves credit for that. But the credit that he deserved for that, which ASU is now, you know, probably in the top three or four environments in the Pac-12, would have been getting an arena remodeled, you know, and not having to look at, uh, you know, the Mullet Arena every day when you drive to work and they spent $120 million for hockey. And then you got people that don't have handrails who are, you know, in their 70s and 80s walking down to sit in the lower bowl at Desert Financial Arena. Never mind the fact that you can't take your recruits behind the scenes because it's like shit paint coming off the walls that you wonder whether or not that's lead in the paint and there's mold in the bathrooms and all these other problems that you got, okay? So my point is that how can you really know all of that being the circumstances and then throw saying what he said and then you're going to have to replace Bobby Hurley, correct? Right? If you get rid of him, you got to replace him. Well, who are you going to get that ha that is going to already know what the president just said a few weeks ago and the challenges that I just talked about, 40 years of never winning the conference, a boiler blowing up in your arena that costs you a game to a year and a half earlier, but then saying it doesn't affect winning. Okay, that's, that's kind of silly, right? So I don't think – I already said, I don't think that Hurley has maximized his opportunity this year or even in earlier years. I think that he could have done better with some of his teams. But he also understands ASU better than any almost any coach they would probably bring in. And he is able to maybe make smaller, finer tuning corrections to what he's already done, which is a baseline established, right? Okay, this guy can, can be a, at worst a 500 basketball coach in the Pac-12. And he's done that with different types of rosters and, and everything. He needs to get better in some ways. He needs to get better with its with his with, with uh, shot selection on the offensive end of his players, and even design of scheme uh, and being sort of prepared for how to attack opponents to be successful. But he has a lot of other great things about him. Guy works his butt off. He's very invested. He has shown the ability to rebuild a, ro a roster with uh, you know short turnaround with a bunch of his players. They've been very good on defense, right? So there's a lot of things that are actually pretty good. And absolutely, I think, given everything that I'm saying here, he deserved to get an extension. Like that's like, it would have kind of been silly if you didn't extend him. But I'm also going to point out, Bobby Hurley has areas where he can and should pursue being able to get better.
All right, and we're going to keep it moving along. We've got some uh, guys who are out of eligibility. Desmond Cambridge, Luther Muhammad are not going to be coming back. Uh, Enoch Buache, Austin Nunez, uh, DJ Horn, Jemiah Neal into the portal, but Jemiah Neal did come back out. Um, and ASU's also added a handful of players as well. So, Noah, um, kind of what are your thoughts on so far just how all of this has transpired um, coming out of the end of the basketball season with where all the players um, are kind of leaning so far with their decisions and maybe where do you think some of them might end up? The roster, in my opinion, when you have Bobby Hurley as your coach, is not as big of a concern. I think early on um, they've added some couple of good additions, um, Malachi Davis, Juco. Um, looks like a bucket, obviously, when you're watching highlights. Um, hard to gauge that a little bit um, until he's really up against the competition that he's going to be playing here. Um, what's that but, mean, Noah? What's that mean, look like a bucket? We got some we got some, uh, we, we got some. people that are not in our gen, not in my generation or younger generations like yours. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he can score the ball. He can score okay. the ball. That's That's the quick translation there. Um, and he seems like the guard that, uh, would fit within Bobby Hurley's guard use system. Um, he sort of reloaded in, in that regard, um, last off season to this year with, uh, with someone like a Desmond Cambridge, um, and, you know, getting back to Maya Neal, uh, on that note, I think is, is pretty huge for them because I felt like this year he showed, uh, toward the end of the season down the stretch, really what he can do as a score uh, when sort of he's funneled touches and at the same time doesn't um, really over dribble. I think when you're in a role that is sort of taking a taking it back to some other guys on th this past team, it was DJ Horn, Desmond Cambridge, uh, and even Frankie Collins to some extent. Uh, it can be difficult for someone like Jemiah to, to really – find his fit because he, he wants to score, right? But at the same time, you're, you're trying to do that within the flow of the offense. And if you're sort of pressing to do that, it can, it can come across not so productively. Uh, and I think that's how it went, you know, I thought for most of the season until he really sort of settled in uh, without Austin Nunez, he, he got more minutes. I felt like he was a bigger part of the rotation and he, he could really uh, establish, establish himself a little bit more uh, in that bigger role. So him coming back, Desmond Cambridge going out, he seems to fit sort of the, the, the archetype that could take up something like Desmond Cambridge did this past season in terms of his ability to score the ball. He's long. In his two seasons with ASU, he's shown the defensive ability because of how athletic he is, how, how his length plays on the perimeter there. So I think him coming out of the transfer portal was big probably bigger than any of their two other pickups. Uh, Kamari Lands from Louisville, that's that's good. Uh, six foot eight, adds length to the perimeter for them. Um, sort of fits the style that I think Hurley wants to try and carry over from this past season, being aggressive there, defensively turning that into offensive opportunities as much as possible. Um, and then, you know, with Warren Washington, he's still sort of in limbo right now, but him coming back. Uh, and this is sort of not knowing exactly who they would add in his place, he's had his weaknesses uh, sort of come up throughout this past season in terms of his his strength on the interior against some of you know against some bigger guys. I thought uh, some some you know stronger front courts when he played against USC. The, that's the one that comes to mind really. Um, and Morgan really wasn't playing all that much because of foul trouble. He struggled against you know the backup, um, actually the third string. I thought it was because um, they had another. Uh, one of their forwards out uh, due to injury. Still, he still was able to be the anchor uh, inside. Lock shots altered them uh, more often than not. So I, I think roster building this at this point compared to last season, it's going to look a little bit different for Hurley. He's really just trying to add just a little bit more uh, build around the core. He said in his press conference, uh, the core of guys that's presumably you know, Frankie Collins with Neil back, that's, that's got to be part of the core. Um, and then with Devin Gamebridge, of course, you know, he sort of soared beyond expectations, at least my expectations coming into this season. Um, you know, he was a guy that came from Auburn, didn't get a whole lot of play. Uh, his sort of ceiling wasn't so clear um, because he wasn't 
really doing as much as he did this past season, really, uh, when Hurley let him loose, you know, shooting threes. Like, I watched him shoot some threes in the first few games, was wondering why, and then overall, you know, it didn't turn out so bad. So, um, you know, overall, I think the roster is not going to be the issue here. It's, it's more about sort of um, what Chris was talking about earlier as to whether or not Bobby is going to be willing to to take those other steps to to better maximize the talent that he's shown, that he's proven to be able to build uh, on, on the basis of a roster. You know, the, the shot selection, it, it really hasn't been – it's been the same as it seems throughout his tenure. Um, and so that, I think – is the one doubt that I have, um, you know, he'll bring in the guys that can, that can score, that can sort of fit his style of play. Um, but he's shown a sort of, uh, a confidence in that, in that branding, the guard you obviously, but just the, the style of play that they have when, and whenever he references that, it doesn't seem like it's something he's not proud of. Like he's proud of how attractive it is to play for him and how that sort of plays with recruits. Um, and I think some of the downsides of that you've seen with the offensive inconsistencies, letting guys take, you know, shots that they probably shouldn't take, uh, contested shots, things of that nature. So th that's the one thing that I that I don't really see going for him. And and the one indicator in my mind as to you know the it's not likely that he'll actually go to that length that he probably needs to to be able to improve something like shot selection. Chris, what do you like most about so this roster coming back and where do you think Bobby needs to work most on, on improving it and, and bolstering it and making it better so the team can come back next season and, and find more success and try to return to the NCAA tournament? Well, I think Warren Washington's decision is, is big. Um, I've heard that he might test the waters with the NBA draft. I don't think he's a draft guy, um, but he could sort of assess – um, his economic value as a professional versus coming back to ASU. Um, the team just did better when he played well and was heavily utilized. So that matters. And uh, Devin Cambridge coming back, I think he was uh, in a lot of ways sort of like almost like their most valuable player, even though he wasn't sort of statistically – in, you know, from, a you know, the guy that you point at point to, right? Like that was his brother, Desmond Cambridge, who was the only all-conference player that they had, and he's leaving. But I do kind of feel like Jemiah Neal, the way he played to end the season, he's ready to kind of take on a lot of that, right? And Frankie Collins is same point guard. You're going to have the same point guard. So you're going to have probably not that much of a diminished capability with your perimeter, especially when you add what you're getting in Malachi Davis, who um, scored 30 or more points in four straight uh, uh, junior college national championship you know, tournament games in the last month. He's a 6'4 guard who's a three-level scorer and all that stuff. Maybe he's a volume guy, but he averaged like 17 points in like 20 minutes a game or something at Tallahassee. So, you know, I, I don't, we'll have to see, like, is he, um, you know, is he like some of the guards that ASU's had who have been kind of like higher volume, but how much, you know, additive are they to winning, you know, types of guys? Like Alonzo Verge was the guy who maybe could be similar to this, but you still want to have Alonzo Verge on your team probably, right? If you figure out how to marshal and utilize that. Um, so... They, they've also supplemented, I think, productively with uh, Kamari Lands. He's a guy at Hillcrest. I saw him play. Like I'm familiar with his game. He's a 6'8", perimeter-oriented guy. Uh, I think he's more of a truer wing than like an Alonzo Gaffney, if you will. And he shoots the ball probably better than a Gaffney. Uh, not as maybe tall or long, but I, I like him. Like he's he's like good. Like he should be in your top six or seven. And then they added – um, uh, two freshmen, Braylon Green and a Akil Watson. Um, Akil Watson is a six eight, uh, sort of a power forward, hybrid forward. I would call him. I mean, he he can do some of the same things. I don't know that he's going to be like super ready right now, but they're both 
you know, like kind of on the lower end of four star status. Green's a shooting guard, uh, six foot three. He can also kind of handle it and put and play multiple positions. But look, there are probably three, there are probably two or three more transfers coming. Um, so we'll see about Washington. They need another guy up front, even though they, we haven't talked about Duke Brennan. Duke Brennan's definitely ready to play a bigger role, and and he can also play on the court, I think, side-by-side side with some other size, potentially. Um, so they, but, you know, they're going to need probably two more perimeter, one more perimeter player at a minimum, and then one more front court player at a minimum via the transfer portal. And, but they should have a roster that is roughly comparable from an overall talent standpoint and uh, relative to the rest of the Pac-12 standpoint. All right, so a lot of interesting conversation right there surrounding the basketball team, but let's go ahead and flip the page over to football. Spring football is underway. We're two-thirds of the way through spring football practices. Kenny Dillingham at the helm. Um, so, so far, guys, what have been your thoughts on the schemes, the culture, and what just the overall energy has been like so far in spring football? Noah, let's go ahead and kick it off with you, man. Comparatively, um, it's it's just been way different. Uh We've reported on it, written stories on it. Um, the the vibe, the the tone, uh, is all set by Dillingham. Like there is no one else. the The responsibility it seems like he has it, it's been embraced by him, uh, as opposed to really he he delegates. Obviously, he has all his coaches, but in terms of really having sort of all of his players and and coaches feed off of him, that that's what I've seen. You know. Um, and then that's sort of worked out well, as it seems, you know, in the earlier stages of his tenure um, compared to like a Herm Edwards, you know, obviously that just wasn't, wasn't the same. It's more business like uh, everyone sort of takes care of their own business sort of thing, uh, you know, from period to period. And then you'll come together for like scrimmages every now and again. Um, it just felt, I, I think, a little bit more disconnected uh, during that time covering, covering Edwards practices. Um, it, it did get a did get a bump in terms of the pace uh, and urgency when when Aguano uh, took over for the interim, but that that felt still a little bit different because there that urgency was more for you know him being an interim, trying to really prove you know his worth uh, in that position, and you know the fact that Dillingham he's got his contract uh, and and everything like that, he's secure in that spot. He's not he's not doing it for any sort of anything else other than really pushing this program forward, advancing it uh, to the place that he really believes it should be. Um, and so that's really, uh, as it seems, you know, based on what the players have told us, the assistants that we've spoken with have told us um, has really allowed for some buy-in, you know, quickly. Uh, we're two thirds of the way through spring practice, but really it's only been 10 practices with Kenny Dillingham as, as the media has seen and uh, at this point, you know, the culture is, is really uh, starting to get underway and, and really following a certain track. Like you can see clearly what Dillingham is trying to do. And, and that, that direction, I think, is always a good sign. You know, when you have young players, when you're, when you're a college coach, that's the sort of feel you want these guys to have. Um, even if it's not, you know, the season is far away at this point. It's just trying to build that foundation. Yeah, you talk about a lot of the energy, Chris. There's been a lot of physicality out there at spring football practices as well. And guys strapping up, ready to get back and, and see that contact and feel that contact. So kind of what have you gauged out of it so far um, in the early going with Kenny Dillingham's just, you know, readiness to, to get out there, engage in contact and get these guys ready uh, for the upcoming season here in fall? Yeah, it's great uh, for from our perspective, being able to go out there and watch like two plus hours of every practice. Uh, you get a great sense of what it's actually like. Um, the, the I would summarize it like this. Kane Dillingham likes to say um, that we as a team are going to uh, have more fun than we've ever had working harder than we ever have. Like that's his, you know, sort of bumper slogan. And you see that they actually do have a very good time but they are being pushed aggressively uh, in terms of, you know, being, being more competitive, having more intensity, having more physicality. Right. Um, and, uh, 
but then you wheel out a basketball hoop on, on the field and you have a, a competition. You let a 330-pound defensive tackle run a route against an offensive lineman and see if he can catch a touchdown, right? And then you have a dance-off competition that Kenny Dalingham does the worm. Um, so the players, they all say that it's fun to play for him, even though they are being pushed, and also that he's extremely authentic. Like he was tweeting today about winning a game of spades. Everything is about competition, having fun, blah, blah, blah. I, but I also think that um, the schemes are user-friendly. They had a rule change this year that allows for walkthroughs in January and February. So they were able to have a better sort of sense of what they were trying to do going into March. And that has actually helped them look a little bit better than you would expect for how many players that they have to integrate with these new schemes and new coaches and all of that. Yeah. And let's transition into just talking about what the team itself and some of the specific positions and, and inside of the balls looked like, what's it look like on the offense right now? Because there's been a lot of talk about the quarterback battle coming up uh, with Jaden Rashada coming in as well as a, a young freshman with a lot of talent. And there's also been some breakout players across the field as well on both sides of the ball, but to start it off with the offense, Noah, uh, what have been your biggest takeaways so far two-thirds of the way through with the offense? Yeah, so I have to start with the quarterbacks. Um, speaking of that, the sense was that it was really crowded uh, given the additions that they had made, bringing in Drew Pine from Notre Dame, Jacob Conover from BYU, Jaden Rashada, right, and, and all of that. But from what we've seen and, and the performances from all the team periods and even seven-on-seven seven to some extent – uh, it doesn't really seem that it's all that crowded, actually, when it comes to who is is really competing for that starting job. They're all getting reps. And so, you know, that that's going to be the case right now in the spring. But with Trenton Borgay and Drew Pine, uh, it, it feels like they're the front runners. They've gotten most uh, in recent weeks, most of the team period reps. And as far as I can tell, it really looks like uh, Borgay, he's had less um, sort of setbacks in some of these uh, sessions where he'll, he'll just show a greater sense of consistency. It seems like the scheme fits a lot of like what his strengths are, getting the ball out quickly, making fast reads. Um, Drew Pine, I, I think he's probably got more of the natural tools potentially, but he's also just not, it doesn't feel, seem like he's real comfortable right now. I don't know if that's something that comes along further, um, as he just, you know, gets more reps and things of that nature, but he hasn't looked in, in my opinion, as great as, um, as Borgay has in these earlier practices. Uh, and as Dillingham had mentioned, you know, earlier in the spring, really everyone's having a fresh start here. So Borgay, it's not as if he had a sense of momentum, uh, coming in from, from the last regime. He's also new to a lot of these, uh, different concepts that are trying to be implemented by Dillingham. So, um, that's, that's for one. Uh, I think recently some of the, you know, action around position changes and, and who's getting reps where spring, you're testing out some players in different spots. Javen Jacobs, um, you know, getting some run at running back uh, as, as seemed to be good for him. Um, you know, he has that experience as a route runner, can catch passes out of the backfield. And as at least I think the size in the long run, could potentially be an issue, but obviously if that's going to be something that he fully transitions to, that can be taken care of. Um, so that that's the other thing that I really wanted to point out. I think the receivers, that, that room's pretty deep. That room's pretty deep. So in terms of the skill players, that is moving along relatively well, but up front, offensive line-wise, with, with Ben Coleman going out, potentially you know, not having him for a long, long time, uh, they're still trying to figure out uh, – who's really in, in the running uh, for, for that spot. And even across the line, there's, there's battles going on. And I think that uh, from my eye has, has looked to be sort of the, this area where they have to really improve the most. Um, but even with that said, I mean, Sagatui Tele, Stephen Miller, they, they're really hard on them in the trenches every day. Um, and they're moving along in the right direction. So even in that case, if you want to call it a weakness at this stage uh, in the spring, that there's still sort of everything is involving forward progress, uh, and that's always a good sign. Chris, how about you? Who's standing out maybe more some of the leaders on the offensive side of the ball that are coming back um, that have just, you know, kind of stood out to you as guys that are kind of making a looking to make that next move in their game 
and guys that have also just kind of maybe figured out the playbook quicker than you might have expected? I'm just going to summarize this really pretty quickly for you. Uh, ASU has great wide receivers and tight ends. And I don't use, um, people should know, I don't use the word great lightly. They are great. Xavier Guillory is their most impressive newcomer as a wide receiver. He looks, uh, you can't really tell who's better between Guillory and Elijah Badger. Badger had 70 catches last year. He's one of the top returning receivers in the Pac-12, right? And then you also have Geo Sanders coming back. He had 40 catches last year. And then you add Milquan Stovall, who looks like he is neck and neck with Geo Sanders, right? Um, so you have uh, really good wide receivers. Other guys we are, haven't even mentioned are capable of playing at this level. Uh, Jake Smith looks like he's got a chance to be, you know, good as well, you know, if he's healthy. Um, and then tight end, ASU has the ability to be the best in the Pac-12 between Jalen Conyers, who's made incredible catches, like one-handed catches on multiple practices, uh, breaking all kinds of tackles, dragging people into the end zone. Looks fantastic. And, of course, ASU has a starting quarterback, a, a, a tight end, Messiah Swinson, who is also an extremely well-rounded player. So they look great, a wide receiver and tight end. Running back, um, they're going to be serviceable. Uh, they don't have you know outstanding talent, but I don't think that's going to be a limitation for them. Quarterback play, very close, I would say. Too early to really call it between Trenton Bourget and Drew Pine. Uh, they're very similar. I don't think that there's like style wise, there's going to be like a big difference in terms of what you can do. It's also good that you could don't have to prepare differently for e either quarterback. The ACU is going to complete a ton of passes where gay might be, might be making a little bit better decisions a little bit more quickly. Pine has a little better physical tools and then offensive line. Uh, that's their biggest question mark right now. Ben Coleman injury. Now, as Noah said, a left guard, uh, you know, we have not seen um, Aaron Frost in in 11 on 11s or anything to this point. Sometimes he hasn't, we haven't seen him at practice. Um, so they have questions, especially on the interior, uh, even though Leif Fa'utanu has looked good as a center. Um, so that should be pretty solidified. Um, if they can keep the quarterback upright and they can uh, run the ball decently well, they're going to be a pretty good offense. I do think that they're going to be potent enough in their passing game to score a lot of points and play in shootouts if need be. All right, and going over to the defensive side of the ball, ASU struggled to get to the passer last season. This year they've had a new player, Clayton Smith, come into the defensive side of the ball. Uh, Noah, what are your thoughts on the defense as a whole and just some of the new additions like Clayton Smith that have got added in? Yeah, Clayton Smith, Prince Dorba, uh, you know, from Texas. They've, they've come in alongside other guys like Garen Stansbury and B.J. Green, working a lot on the edge. Uh, and they've all looked really impressive, uh, especially as as the spring has progressed and they've in, in introduced, you know, more blitz packages and things of that nature. They've really been able to on, you know, there hasn't been a practice as of late where you haven't seen one of them uh pressuring the quarterback, getting a sack here and there. Uh, in the scrimmages, they've done they've done well. They've stood out. Um, but it, it's not sort of concentrated to only that. You've seen, you know, a guy like Roe Ro Torrance, he's back. Um, you know, Isaiah Johnson, when he when he's out there, he 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 looks like he can really complement Torrance, uh, you know, in his own way at, at a corner spot. So I, I think they do have some strengths there um, that – is promising. They brought in a couple other transfers uh, in the secondary at safety with Alford and Simmons. Uh, as of late, at least Sim Simmons, I thought he struggled a little bit uh, earlier in the spring, but together they have looked pretty well, uh, get out of their break quickly. And uh, they fit sort of the scheme. They played Alford closer to the line on certain instances when they are trying to sort of give the offensive line different looks. Uh, I think when we were talking about the offensive line and that being the biggest question mark, some of it is, you know, how the defense has made them look to this point in terms of, you know, being confused on certain uh, assignments and where guys are coming from, who's coming. Um, and, you know, that's that's a credit to Brian Ward and how he may be able to, you know, collectively maximize the talent that he's got here on this defense. Um, you know, right now at linebacker, uh, you know, James Drunkham, he, he's sort of getting more run there. I, I thought he was going to be more on the edge. Uh, he's alongside other guys, probably behind Travion Brown, uh, Will Schaefer. They've, they've looked decently well. Uh, but in terms of the depth there, 
Uh, it's probably not necessarily where it needs to be from a roster uh, standpoint. Um, if you wanted to compare that uh, up against all of the other positions that I had mentioned, uh, it may be a step or two behind. Uh, but when you have a guy like Brown, who's a, you know, a veteran, who's familiar with Ward, as well as A.J. Cooper, the linebackers coach, who's also uh, coming from Washington State, uh, that's, that's a plus. You know, and, and he's been able to at least catalyze the energy uh, and the effort from that group in skill drills and things of that nature. Yeah, you talk about Brian Ward, lots of guys on the defensive side of the ball raving about having him in the room, just being able to kind of guide them through this process of um, working out through the defensive scheme. Chris, what are your thoughts on uh, the defensive side of the ball so far? Well, their strengths appear to be in their secondary and then with their edge positions and defensive ends. They, they are going to be – when they get teams into third and long, they're probably going to be very good because they're going to be able to get after the quarterback – and they're going to be able to cover in man. Um, so their 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 whole issue is going to be, can they get to a lot of those third and long situations and how do they actually do that? Um, they're not deep, though, in some of these spots. Uh, you look at safety, it's like, okay, I think I think uh, Xavier Alford has looked good. Shamari Simmons has come on in the last week and he looks like he's sticky in coverage. Uh, of course, they have Chris Edmonds back, who's a capable starter. So you have three. Uh, you have at corner, Ro Torrance. He's a he's a plus starter in the Pac-12. Could be maybe even all-conference. And then you have Ed Woods and Isaiah Johnson. You know, they're capable. Isaiah Johnson, you're never going to maybe 100% know like if you're going to get everything that you need from him. But his ceiling is just massive if it kind of all is able to come together. And then you have a really experienced uh, nickel corner in Jordan Clark. But when some of these guys have, have didn't practice in the scrimmage, for example, then all of a sudden you're rolling out RJ Reagan and walk-ons and Mason Williams and other guys and Elijah Gamage and whatever in the secondary. And so it shows you that you don't have the depth where you need it to be kind of right now. And if you have a couple guys go down and then, um, you know, at the edge positions, BJ green is, is outstanding. Clayton Smith looks like he's good. Prince Thorba has kind of come on. We haven't even seen Michael Matus. Remember, he's coming off of the knee injury last year, and they moved Anthony Cooper inside. The questions about this defense primarily are defensive tackle and linebacker. I think Trey Brown is going to be a, a solid, if but not spectacular, option for them. Uh, their second, their will backer, I think, will be a little bit of a question mark between some of the guys that they have and nobody's really flourishing um, out of their options. And then uh, outside of Anthony Cooper, are they going to have uh, tackles, especially nose tackles, who are going to be able to step up and handle that role? I think they have a bunch of guys, but nobody who's like shown me that they're ready to play really successfully right now. CJ fight is a, a freshman who has maybe a chance to even you know, beat some of these older guys in the two deep uh, as it stands right now. That's probably where they need another another player or two. Uh, you know, be after the spring nose tackle, just defensive tackle in general, because you know, Ward's defense you can kind of interchangeably use them, and then another linebacker. So Noah, based off what you've seen so far and from everything we've talked about, kind of how do you view this team? moving ahead into the summer and to the fall? And how do you kind of put a perspective on this upcoming season for Arizona State? Yeah, in terms of the schedule for this upcoming season, bodes well for them, you know, having eight home games. That's uh, that's going to be a plus, being able to be in front of home fans. Uh, Dillingham's whole thing about activating the Valley, trying to rally support. Um, if he's able to do that uh, somewhat effectively, that could play in their favor. You know, given that kind of schedule, um, still don't think that uh, it's going to be reasonable to expect something spectacular from them. Obviously, in his first season, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a process. I'd say when you're looking at the 12 games, probably expect them to be anywhere from five, five to seven wins. Uh, that would be, in my opinion, the the sort of the average range Uh to be expected from this team. Uh, they're making progress. And with the talent that they've been able to stockpile from the transfer portal, that's sort of allowing them to be uh, to be able to get to that point where they can actually break even at six and six or even seven and five. 
So, um, you know, at, at this point, that's where I'm comfortable sort of looking at this team uh, and, and sort of saying how they're going to be able to put to put together an on-field product uh, in the Pac-12. Um, beyond that, uh, I've seen things on social media. Obviously, people are optimistic early on in, in a coach's tenure, especially, you know, with Dillingham as, as energetic and positive and, and everything that sort of comes with that. Uh, you can get people that are saying, you know, maybe nine and three or like a Dennis Erickson type thing in his first season. Um, at, at this point, I don't necessarily see that uh, coming to fruition. Um, as we've covered offensively and defensively, they've got strengths in certain areas that if they maximize, that could be a really good thing in terms of getting to the higher end of, of my projection there, seven and five, maybe even breaking into an eighth win. But, but at this point, uh, some of the depth, right? You, you may have to reconcile with injuries and things unforeseen to us here in the spring. That's uh, that's something that you have to also consider. So an early projection of five and seven to seven and five, that's where you've got them going. Chris, do you agree with that? And uh, if not, do, well, what's your opinion and what's, what's your prediction heading into next season? Yeah, I'm a little bit more bullish actually on ASU, I think. All right. Yeah, I think – I think this should be a bowl team, a bowl eligible team. Um, I'm just going to go out and just say right now that while they do have some clear question marks with their offensive line, defensive tackle, linebacker, we talked about those things. Um, I think that Brian Ward was able to maximize a defense at Washington State that probably wasn't that much better from a personnel standpoint. Uh, first year call and plays there. Uh, Kenny Dillingham. Um, had a quarterback complete 70% plus of his passes and they scored a lot of points. And there's no reason to think they can't get the ball out quickly and do a lot of those similar things with their receivers and tight ends. The schedule is very favorable. You play eight, eight games at home. The last two times that happened for ASU, they won 10 games in each year. Nobody thought that Dennis Erickson's team was going to win uh, 10 games. I don't think this team's going to win 10 games, but would I be surprised that they won eight? No, I actually wouldn't be surprised at all if they won eight. I wouldn't be surprised that they're five and one. To start the season. When I look at their schedule, um, they got like, three home games, Southern Utah, Oklahoma State, Fresno State. Okay. Like Fresno State, that's that's a tough non-power five team. Oklahoma State had a lot of transfers. I mean, I'm not sure where they're at, but um, they're gonna I think ASU is gonna be better coached and they probably should have won in Stillwater last year if they like had been coached well. And then they ASU gets USC at home. Okay, maybe that's a loss, but you never know. Uh at Cal and home versus Colorado. Yeah, I mean, look, and then then later on in the season, you you host uh, Washington State, you host Oregon, you host Arizona. Um, I, I, I'm just going to say, like, I think ASU is going to have a pretty reasonably potent offensive capability. They're going to be good when they get to third downs. They're uh, probably not going to turn the ball over. They're going to be pr pretty good in turnover margin. They're going to get more negative plays than their opponents. And I just think that they're going to end up being better than people think. The over under and all the betting stuff is going to be like five wins for ASU, probably, right? Give or take half of a game. It's going to be somewhere within that. And I think, like, I'm not telling, I'm not advising anybody to bet or whatever, right? I didn't think ASU was going to win three games last season. But I just, this year, right now, I feel like it, like, they shouldn't be under five for, for, for the season. So, um, you know, but I, I, I personally, I would be more likely put it at like six and a half, my, my own personal over under right now. And I might even take the over on that if I had to. So um, now we'll see, they have to say, they have to stay healthy. There's a lot that can happen between now and then. Right? I'm not like booking that. I'm still going to, we're going to continue to assess and evolve and we will revisit this <laughs> you know, the third week of August, the fourth week of August. And I'll give you my opinion uh, at that point. But people go, oh, Chris, he said such and such. Okay, like that's book, that's locked in. Well, no, I mean, I'm going to continue to watch them practice. They've had 10 practices. We're going to watch 20 more practices between now and when I, you know, lock it in. But I like the team much better then I think that um, that that you know is going to be generally expected of ASU, and that isn't actually commonly said by me. Usually, I'm more on the conservative side 
then the, wow, they're going to be three games better than what their projected side. So, but let's see what happens. Yeah, I was about to say, I had the tweet all ready to go before you were stopping us. I mean, I was going to be like, Chris Cartman back oh, on the bullish side of Arizona State football. Holy cow, who saw this coming? Unbelievable. But Chris, I want to stick with you and talk to you about the hot 11. 11 guys that have made the biggest impact relative to what you've expected. We've talked about several other names already that I think you're probably going to be throwing out. Guys like BJ Green, Xavier Guillory, Dario Longhetto, transfer kicker. So go ahead and uh, walk me down through your top 11 guys right now at this point. Right. So just want to emphasize, it's the guys who have impressed me most relative to what I expected to see from them going into the spring. Yes. yes. I know by no means is it like ASU's best 11 players or else we would have some other guys on this list. Of course, like Elijah Badger, right. Uh, For example. Um, But, the the good one of the sort of most positive uh, signs for ASU is that is that uh, BJ Green, who sort was their you know best pass rusher probably last year, he's high on the list. And then also good for ASU is that Xavier Guillory, who's a new wide receiver who was expected to be an impact transfer, has looked outstanding even relative to what we expected from him. And Dario Longhetto, the kicker. After ASU lost Carter Brown to Cincinnati, people are okay. Like, are they going to be able to have a good kicker? Uh, he wasn't very good, uh, you know, outside uh, outside of forty yards at, at Berkeley. But he's been lights out. I mean, like almost automatic on anything inside of fifty yards in a practice setting. And then just so to kind of like point out some other guys, Garen Stansberry lost last season pretty much due to a hamstring injury, but he looks like he's ready to go right now. I didn't mention earlier with the pass rush capability, but I he looks like he's in their top four guys right now. I mentioned CJ Fight. Uh I think he's been one of the more impressive freshmen. Um Trenton Bourget, I think as a quarterback, um has executed at a high level. I think he's capable of being a 70% passer in this type of an offense. You know, still want to see if he has that vertical explosive, you know, passing game capability. Um, Tristan Monday was a, uh, a transfer from Wisconsin, has a good chance to play on the inside, a, quite a big role, definitely in their rotation. And then, um, you know, I, I also included a couple guys that people wouldn't probably expect, including James Junkum as a linebacker, big and athletic. He can run. He had a good scrimmage. And Ryan Morgan, he's not going to be one of their top tight ends. But when you don't have Case Hatch anymore, you need somebody to be able to service some kind of a role. And I think Ryan Morgan's starting to squeeze out, you know, a lower, a lot of his lower ceiling potential which you still have to uh, uh, recognize. And uh, freshman Ashley Williams is a very good-looking uh, 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 defensive end pro- product, uh, project, uh, 6'5", 235. He's you know, going to be a great-looking kid physically, athletically in the coming years. And then I, I threw Jalen Conyers on there because, man, even though I expected he'd be great, uh, just some of the plays that he's made have been incredible to watch. Yeah, he's been unbelievable. You talk about the one-handed catch in uh, the spring scrimmage. I think it was two weeks ago. Unbelievable play there. And he's just a guy that just – it doesn't seem like anybody can bring him down. And every time you throw somebody else at him, he shows you, I'm going to make it that much more difficult. So, like you said, he's been an absolute joy to watch so far with the the performances he's put on. Um, and, Chris, with Kenny Dillingham, everything we've seen from him this spring, what can we expect from him – uh, during a football season uh, as a head coach now here at Arizona State? Well, it's sort of like Noah said earlier, he has a very particular way that he wants everything to, to be done. Um, so he's extremely involved. He is, you know, fortunately for him, he's he's the youngest coach in the country because it, it sort of required based upon how much energy that he uses that he be really young. Um, he just, he just wants things done a particular way there. Uh, you know, he's trying to get the guys to be more physical, to have more intensity, but to do so while also being disciplined and to execute, you know, there's an emphasis on a lot of the smaller details and, you know, how to think about certain things, uh, in the way that, that, that he wants. And so all of this is very, uh, I think encouraging, for the program, I, I've said this before, and I will probably a lot more, but I feel like he finds the right ability to balance having the uh, pushing guys 
to try to squeeze the most effort and intensity and focus out of them and time commitment while also kind of loving them up, giving them a hug, making them feel good, making, making them feel like he's, he is uh, invested in them and not just, you know, uh, they're not just pawns in some, you know, game that benefits him personally. So um, that really, I don't know that that's, that the players have consensus felt that in ASU in the last four coaches and definitely not over the long term of those coaching tenures, while also being able to have some of those important things from a discipline, intensity, physicality, you know, uh, component. So uh, I am very bullish on on what I've seen from Kenny Dillingham, and it absolutely is not just because it's a new coach; it's because it's this particular new coach who understands schemes in the Pac-12, recruiting to the Pac-12, staffing to the Pac-12, connecting with the young players, NIL, and all these other sort of things that I have mentioned um, that are um, encouraging signs about his potential. All right. Well, time to wrap it up, Chris. Thank you so much for your time as always. And Noah, thank you so much as well for coming in and providing that great insight. We're going to be having a conversation about baseball and some other stuff just surrounding the smoking hot Sun Devils right now is they're atop the Pac-12 standings, although they have had the easiest schedule of any other team in the conference so far, but that'll be on the Sun Devil Source Premium Podcast. Until next time, thank you so much. I'm Ethan Tuttle. We'll see you next time.